0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station
1: 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast.
2: Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Hands. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to late 30am. double. Clap Clap your
3: hands. hands. Baby, 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 baby.
4: Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It is the 8th of February and it is 7.01am Um, And I'm in the studio here today uh, with Evie and in the other studio, Genevieve and Fung. How is everyone? Good. How are you? (laughs) I'm all right. I'm, um, you know, all right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just trucking along. Just trucking along. It's nice to like, I, I don't know what I expected from this summer. I think like because everyone was talking about Lenina. Um, I was expecting it to be really cold and everything, but it's actually been really lovely.
4: I know. last few days. It's been great. Um, Um, yeah. I've been camping (laughs) for like a week. Yeah. And
1: I know I keep seeing your pictures on Instagram and I'm so jealous. It's been
4: just such a nice break. Yeah. And it's difficult to reintegrate into office life and society. I mean, why would you though? (laughs) (laughs) Well, why would I? Ah, how's everyone else have we got jen and Fung in studio too
5: hello hello. <laughs> Ooh, <good morning. laughs>
4: hello sorry we're all, we're all very excited to be here how are you jen and Fung?
5: yeah great just um just speaking about you know how busy this start of the year has been um i feel like i need another summer break already i, I agree
1: I'm exhausted <laughs> <laughs> I, I was saying I was saying earlier this morning that um this first month um since the start of January has felt really busy, but also I feel like I haven't achieved anything of any sort of note, so it just kind of feels like, oh okay, well, that last month happened what's what's next? Yeah, yeah
0: it just seems like a blur at this point <laughs> um especially just like launching back into so much work but that's okay mm. um yeah i also have been getting around and going to the movies a little bit which ooh, has been really ooh. nice what have you seen i saw licorice pizza last night oh excellent um which was interesting <laughs> i not know if
4: anyone's seen it i haven't but it's got one of the heim sisters in it it does
0: she is so good in Is it. Yeah, yeah. she's oh, I love that. Uh, for her, de- I think it's her debut. Um, she's a, yeah, was really incredible, and I mean, the casting was really great um they also had philip seymour huffman's son in it as like the main is i was um, like he looks so familiar (laughs) yeah yeah but um it's an interesting storyline like i'd recommend it's very entertaining set in like the 1970s has that kind of smoky saloon glamour about it um in like suburbia but it's an interesting story
1: have you seen house of (laughs) gucci Oh my God. I've heard some interesting <laughs> things. About I have that. so many things to say about True. it. <laughs> yeah. It's truly one of the most dreadful movies I've ever watched, but also I just loved it so much. It's like five different movies in one. Um, yeah. one of my friends described it as, um, it's, it's very strange. Um, but yeah, like I, I just very enjoyable. Um, I did not know because I didn't really follow much of the press around it. I didn't know until about three quarters into the movie that Jared Leto was in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I find that to
4: be a strange choice. A,
1: it, it, very strange choice. <laughs> <laughs> they, they could have chosen literally an actor that looked Off like Paolo. that age, Paolo. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. But yeah, uh, we're going to go see um, Wake and Fright tonight. Um, it's the anniversary of um, the, that Australian sort of Outback horror movie. True. Um, so is that like
0: a genre? Is that an actual genre? Ah,
1: uh, it's. I think it's like exploitation was <laughs> uh, the yeah, phrase, yeah. but like
4: I've never heard that. Yeah, it's life. like
1: it's really dark and weird. It's like basically like just imagine the outback and how terrifying that is. Yeah, as a concept like, and basically just like movies like set in that sort of sphere
0: mm. yeah like wolf
1: creek yes uh, that I mean.
4: that has like terrified me <laughs> still i'm yeah, still terrified so, yeah. <laughs> oh with a good reason
1: <laughs> but yeah so that's i think on tonight and um yeah i think like a couple of the um sort of uh both smaller independent cinemas and as well as like nova and palace and that sort of thing are all having like sort of um Just not just like current movies, but also just some other Mm. stuff at the moment. Yes, there's always great
0: replays at Nova Mm. Um, and also Cheap Mondays. I went in and it was pretty. (laughs) I love
1: it. (laughs) It's so good. It's
0: so good.
4: All right. Well, we've got, as always, an excellent show coming up this morning. Mm -hmm. Fung, did you want to start us off
5: on what's coming up? Sure. So at seven thirty, uh, we'll be speaking with Carol, who is a university teacher and an organizer with the support network for international students, um, and we'll be speaking about the how the housing crisis has affected international students during this pandemic and the lack of support for them. Um, this is in preparation for uh, a really awesome. Um, online panel discussion that's going to be taking place tomorrow at five thirty pm it's online it's free um, and uh, it's it's organized by uh, rahu the renters and housing um, union in association with 3cr i'll talk a bit more about the event in our news headlines but yeah we'll be speaking with carol later this morning
4: great and Jen, you've got a great interview as well. Yes, um, I'm sure
0: many of you saw uh, a protest happening on the weekend that was protesting against police uh presence uh, and marching. In the midsummer Pride March, uh, so it took the protest took place um, in conjunction with a petition that was circulating uh, last week, and we are very lucky enough to be joined by one of the protest organisers, Charlotte, uh, who is going to chat to us about you know what why I guess the police have such a presence presence in midsummer and what the implications are for the uh, queer community and uh, for the Pride movement in general. So that should be exciting.
4: That
1: was such an amazing protest.
4: Those pictures Mm. are so good. Absolutely. Uh, And then we're going to listen to an interview that Priya did recently on Women on the Line. Uh, where they spoke with Murray historian and activist Dr. Jackie Huggins about the recently published updated edition of Sister Girl Reflections on Tidaiism, Identity and Reconciliation.
1: And rounding out this morning, I'll be speaking to Lyndall Rollins, who is a reporter in Nam who talks about climate change legislation and climate change court cases. Um, She is working on a podcast Um, called Damages that is coming up very shortly. Uh, So we'll be chatting about that and also just some um, events that are coming up this week too.
4: Amazing. Well, we will be right back with the news headlines after this.
3: If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellway's helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, nine a.m. to nine p.m., excluding public holidays. So, if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellway's helpline on one three hundred triple one five hundred. That's one three hundred triple one five hundred. Wellway supports three CR. All right.
4: Welcome back to Tuesday breakfast. Um. First up, with the news headlines, we have an update on Ukraine.
0: Um, yes. So uh, hopefully if you were tuning in last week or listen back on our podcast, you heard a fabulous interview that I got to do with Anastasia Bissadina, who, uh, is an academic, uh, specializing in post-Soviet, um, I guess, conflicts and, uh, Ukraine. And we had a chat to, uh, I had a chat to her about what's going on in Ukraine in terms of, uh, Russia militarizing the border there. And obviously this is an ongoing, um, situation in Europe where Russia pretty much has, isn't really backing down. And, um, They kind of think that they're doing nothing wrong and they kind of think the, uh, I guess, Western media is being, uh, I guess, quote, hysterical with their reporting on it. Um, But, I mean, after talking to Anna, we can kind of paint a picture that, you know, the people that are being left out of this um, discussion is the actual Ukrainians, but in terms of just a little update, uh, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell has said that Europe is going through its most dangerous moment since the Cold War, amid fear of Russian invasion of Ukraine. And also, the statement came as a Fr- as the French President Emmanuel Macron held talks in Moscow with Russian President Vladimir Putin in the highest profile intervention yet by a Western leader to er- ease the crisis. Meanwhile, a Russia-backed Separatist leader in eastern Ukraine said a full scale war could break out in the region at any time in an interview with the Reuters news agency. Russia has amassed tens of thousands of troops near the Ukraine border, obviously, with Western leaders raising alarms of a potential attack, but Russia has continued to deny it is preparing for an invasion. Um, And even upon talking to Anna last week, you can kind of get a sense that, you know, Ukrainians want sovereignty and I I guess repeating what she was saying, they want the backing of countries that will allow them to have that sovereignty and not just become kind of a battleground for proxy war, which is kind of what's happening now in terms of Russia, the West, uh, and also interestingly, um, Germany who holds a lot of power within the EU doing nothing really to help Ukraine because of, I mean, oil runs through Ukraine. It gets from Russia to Ukraine. Pretty much the whole of Europe is run off Russian oil. And it's a very precarious situation that they don't want to disrupt in case they lose their privilege to that oil. Um, So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, factors in play but I think um the situation is not de-escalating it's kind of becoming a lot more tense and I think the EU is trying to jump <laughs> jump hoops to try to get Russia to back down but ultimately like a lot of smaller Eastern European countries with not a not as much capital um, have helped Ukraine a lot uh in this situation so it'll be interesting to see what these big players do next, but also to not lose sight of the fact that Ukrainians are um, in the middle of all of this and will kind of bear the brunt of this. So, yeah, it's a little update.
4: Wow, that's – um, it's a lot, a lot I know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but uh, in other news, I'm not sure if uh, everyone saw that Peng Shui uh, gave an interview – uh, to an indep- independent media organization, uh, oh, excuse me, organization, since she alleged on Weibo that a senior Chinese official had coerced her into sex, saying it was an, an enormous misunderstanding. Uh, the interview was conducted on the French sports daily Le Quip. Came as the International Olympic Committee said it wasn't up to them or anyone else to judge in one way or another her position. Obviously Peng Shui's disappearance from public life uh, post after her post in November sparked uh, a major campaign calling for confirmation from the Chinese authorities that she was safe. Uh, but after speaking to the media source, Peng said her original statement had been misunderstood. She said she had never accused former Vice Premier Zhang Gali- sorry, Galik of sexual assault, denied she had disappeared from public view afterwards, uh, which is interesting, I think. Um, I mean, yeah. Has, does anyone have any particular thoughts on this? I mean,
1: yeah, I, I think like – it, in the end, it it is up to her to, and like it's her sort of uh, her feelings on the matter and the way that she conveys it. And for sure. you, know, you know, giving this interview, I think, is like part of that too. Uh, it, it's hard to know how to feel when so much of it involves international diplomacy. Though. I know. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's yeah. That's a great, um,
0: like, I guess answer for this is. Uh, Trust her, believe her, support um, her. Support her. Yeah. 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 It's kind of all you can do. Yeah.
4: Um, it is murky, though.
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um,
4: in other news, the murder trial of Northern Territory police officer Zachary Rolfe over the shooting of Indigenous um, teenager J Walker began yesterday, um, and he has pleaded not guilty to one charge of murder- over the 19-year-old's death in the remote desert community in 2019. Um, he has also pleaded not guilty to alternative charges of manslaughter and engaging in a violent act causing death. So, I mean, this is, you know, as always uh, at 3CR, we are vehemently against the police in general, <laughs> um, you know, and have long talked about violence against um, the Indigenous communities in this country, police violence against young uh, people in general, and especially Indigenous youth. Um, and just that, the high incidence of deaths high, in custody. High incidence of deaths in custody. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, so I'll be interested to see how this plays out. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Um some further news this week. Um there's kind of two stories dovetailing here. Um Brisbane um Citiponte Christian College um were in the news early last week uh for having a sexuality contract. Um which they have now withdrawn after backlash. Um just you know statements on homosexuality and whether it was immoral based on you know what their belief system was before they enrolled in the school. Um They've now withdrawn that contract. There was a lot of discussion about this both in mainstream media as well as on social media. This is the kind of action that's enabled by exemptions to the Religious Discrimination Act and the re- and the incoming Religious Discrimination Bill. Um, and – at the moment, it just seems like there's so much focus on what schools individually are doing. And a Sydney school, in fact, um, just this week, has been discovered to be disallowing same-sex relationships. Um, they list same-sex relationships along with abusive relationships as not acceptable. This is a Penrith Christian school. Um, this, is, um, this statement was made as um, part of their statement of faith, Um, and it lists same sex relationships and transgender identity alongside abusive relationships as quote unquote, not acceptable to God. Um, this statement of faith is attached to enrollment application forms for students. Once again, this is the kind of thing that the religious discrimination bill seeks to enable rather than, you know, stop. Um, and just today, in fact, Scott Morrison, um, announced that, um, In the sort of conflict within um, federal parliament at the moment, both within the Liberal Party as well as the Labor Party, um, they are now discussing amendments in order to have the bill passed. One of them being that they may concede to allow um, an amendment to make sure that gay students are not discriminated against but that trans students can in fact be expelled which doesn't make any sense in the context of um, the premise that um, the Liberal Party has proposed for this law but um, yeah it, it's it's just infuriating this bill should not even exist it tramples all over state legislation as well. So absolutely, yeah, so the only thing I can sort of offer for that is to continue to petition your local MP, write letters, um, keep on talking to them and talking to your friends to ensure that that kind of, um, you know, sort of hesitation is squashed. You yeah. know, this bill can't go ahead.
4: Yeah. And we have a song coming up later in the show by Peach Piasi that addresses some of the feelings of growing up with these kinds of religious messaging. Um, recently, there uh, were the literary awards and um, Veronica Gori, who is Nayuka Gori's mum, for anyone who follows Nayuka on social media, they're amazing, um, has won Australia's most prestigious literary accolades the $100,000 Victorian prize for literature for her first book, Um, Black and Blue, A Memoir of Racism and Resilience. Has anyone read the
5: book? I haven't yet, but it's definitely on my list. Uh, yeah, me uh, too.
1: I, I'm literally just starting to catch up over summer over all the books I meant to read last year. So yeah, this, <laughs>
4: this is, is this, this is, is on, first my list. on my list. Um, my partner just read it and says it's absolutely incredible. So I'm really looking forward to I'm, reading it.
1: I'm really fascinated by the point of view of it because um, Ronnie, um, for those who are unaware, was actually a police officer. Yep. Um, and so the the experience of being an Indigenous police officer has yep. informed her views now of you know what what the position is of the police and you know views on abolition and so many so many people um have had experience with the justice system either being incarcerated or in positions like that and realizing just how it doesn't work it doesn't serve the people it's not even rehabilitative so um really exciting that that book is being recognised. Yeah,
4: it's meant to be really just raw and what it is what it is Yeah, Um, and I'm really looking forward to reading that. Um, And I also wanted to mention that Amani Haider's personal account of um, domestic violence where um, she details the killing of her mother by her father um, won the non-fiction prize and I just finished that book, it's called The Mother Wound and it is It's like, you know, of course, it's a tough read, um, but I think it's super important in also very just raw, her own experience, and very nuanced in encompassing um, the experience of different cultures within family violence, um, different religions, different experiences, gendered experiences. Yeah. And just the horror of it all, and highlighting men's violence against women. It's... A phenomenal book. Definitely um, recommend reading that one.
5: And lastly, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I did want to um, alert everyone to an event happening tomorrow, Wednesday the 9th of Feb from 5.30 till 7.30pm. Um, it's called the Housing Justice After Lockdown online panel and it's being organised by Rahu, the Renters and Housing Union in collaboration with 3CR. Uh, It features speakers such as Irene Noyce, and if uh, listeners uh, were tuning into Monday Breakfast yesterday, they would have heard Jacob and Evan speak with Irene from Rahu. um, There will also be Ness uh, Gavanzo from the Support Network for International Students, Sarah Stylianos from Homes Not Prisons, and uh, it will be hosted and facilitated by um, Priya, who we all know from Thursday Breakfast and Women on the Line. Uh, it will be followed by a Q&A with the guests. Um, so please make sure you attend because um, housing has been an absolute shambles. Um, and we know from having had um, Fiona uh, York on the show before that um, housing insecurity is a really big issue and it's affecting um, multiple communities. So I uh, really encourage you to attend this event. Um, it, While it is free, um, it is encouraged that attendees do pay the rent um as as part of the commitment so uh, and you can go do that at www.paytherent.net.au if you'd like to attend this event there is an Eventbrite page for it and um we can pop that link in our show notes later this morning great um uh,
4: next up we have a song by Patrice Roushin. Is that how I say it? (laughs) Yes. Did you want to tell us about this song, then?
0: This is a little throwback. I feel like we've got a lot of new music coming up later, so I thought maybe we can tap back into something that was a bit older. Um, And it's, yeah, it's by Patrice Russian, who is an American jazz pianist and R&B singer. And little fun fact, Patrice was actually the first woman to serve as music director for the 46th, 47th, and 48th Grammy Awards. and she was the only woman music director for a late night show uh, titled The Midnight Hour, which aired on CBS in 1990. Uh, I guess she kind of reached her peak in the 80s, so I thought I'd grab something from that era. But this song is called Remind Me and is off her 1982 album, Straight From the Heart. Patrice Russian with Remind Me.
5: So uh, I mentioned earlier that yesterday on Monday breakfast, Jacob and Evan spoke with Irene Noyce from Renters and Housing Union about the upcoming online event, Housing After Lockdown, which will take place tomorrow. It features speakers from uh, Rahu, Homes Not Prisons, the support network for international students, and will be facilitated facilitated by uh, Priya. Joining us this morning from the support network for international students is Carol who is also a university teacher um, and they'll be speaking to us about how the pandemic has affected international students in particular. Welcome to 3CR Carol.
6: Hi. Um, Thanks for having
5: me. (laughs) No worries. Could you please start by telling us a bit about yourself and the work of the support network for international students?
6: Yeah. um, So, uh, yeah, as you said, I'm a university teacher. I teach, like, um, undergrad media studies um, and so have, I guess, engaged with a lot of international students in that way. um, I'm also an organiser with, SNIS, which, short form, I'm just going to say SNIDS, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and that's like a coalition of organisations and individuals, um, including like international students and allies who work collectively to advance the rights and welfare um, of, of all international students in Victoria and so like this network um it was established in September 2020 um like by um um some of the Filipino local Filipino community organizations in Melbourne um uh, Migrante um and Gabriela um that, so so they you know were already working on the ground with um international students from Lawson College in Dananong um, and and many other ones through their food mutual aid program Um, But they wanted to expand capacity and broaden support for international students of all backgrounds Um, so um, Yeah, like uh, the like we've been consulting and supporting students in that particular Lawson College um, campaign putting forward petition against the college um, that documents the like really immense structural and interpersonal barriers that they face mm. um, and which actually yeah i 'll go into talking about later um it um go, It goes into a campaign called um about anti education trafficking um so yeah, like the primary aim of sNes is to like advance international student voices rights um well being and and welfare. And so there's a range of methods that we might or, or like tactics that we might use, um, which could include um advocating for policy reforms but it's also more so about like um, like establishing like like political education on this stuff um for so that I guess a broader audience, um, you know, on this continent, like, know about what's happening um, and how it's more than just, you know, it's it's not about, you know, international students, cash cows, blah, blah, the whole media narrative. Um, it's about all these institutions and the government engaged in, like, abusive practice and wage theft and trafficking and um, many violations of, like, student rights.
5: Yeah, um, that's so important because even, you know, for myself volunteering in in community radio, you know, when I listen to other forms of media or take in other forms of media, a lot of the discussion around um, international students is always from the point of view of employers and Mm -hmm. needing international students um, to work at their Businesses, or mm-hmm. or something like that, and it's at, and it's never from the perspective of international students, and and hardly ever advocating for mm-hmm. them. Um, could you tell us more about how the pandemic has affected international students specifically? I know people would have seen um, or would have read about, you know, um, food and housing crisis quite generally, but I was wondering if there is anything that a lot of our listeners wouldn't be privy to.
6: Mm-mm. Um, so yeah, I think the pandemic, um, it's exacerbated like existing exploitation of international students. Um, and on your point before, you know, yeah, it is really important for international student voices to come about. Um, I mean, like I've had an experience of being an international student, but not in the same way at all. And, um, I think there are advocacies like led by international students and, Um, I can mention that more later. Um, But a lot of the time, yeah, like, people are really busy. Like, people are working multiple jobs. People are um, basically, like, facing organized abandonment and locked out from public resources, from Mm. from government. Um, And, yeah, other than, you know, not being able to afford food and, like, needing to work heaps, a lot of people experience homelessness. um, And so, like, Housing issues, I guess, has always existed um, for international students or migrants or refugees, you know, people who just, like, aren't from, um, like, a sort of local background maybe, like, have as much knowledge or sort of, yeah, or access to um, understanding their rights and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it can range from, like, many, many things to do with, like abusive and unscrupulous landlords who maybe charge up front or like don't return the bond or don't, um, give a receipt for money paid, you know, or like increasing rent, unfair fictions, et cetera. Um, which, you know, a lot of people face like, like anyway, but I think it, migrants or like non-white migrants, um, would face it to a, a particular extent and um, yeah like I think the majority of students um, has been in contact with they you know have lost their jobs during the lockdowns and um, people end up finding work at regional farms where they um, like work on a stay-in basis and are paid below the minimum wage or you know are paid like on a cash in hand basis. Mm. Um, there are students who have been threatened by deportation by their employers, um and um or like, you know, they like something happens to them at work, like an accident, but they can't really file for a claim. So like all of these factors, right, um like like affect like their sort of living Situation and um, oh, yeah, and there's also, I think, students who experience um, domestic and family violence. But because, you know, like they don't really have too much community here, they might be resigned to like stay in these situations. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, that's all the sort of really challenging stuff. But um, there's also been a lot of community grassroots mobilizing for for international students, um, with international students. So I think like just off the top of my head, like, um, the Sikhs have been like super consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, also there's like a father daughter and like a family trip, tr- um, trio, uh, plus they're like volunteers called Didi's Kitchen. Um, Vic, another org called Vicwise and, um, Yeah, many other local sort of grassroots mutual aid groups and orgs and even like religious institutions. But a lot of them like tend to focus on food mutual aid, that's for sure. Um, Yeah.
5: yeah. Um, It sounds like what international students can face here is actually really um, scary. And and from what you said, um, being in very unsafe situations where people from... Uh, Yeah, people from their landlords to their employers are exploiting them. Um, Mm. Just quickly, because we are running out of time, unfortunately, Mm. Um, what support for international students would SNES like to see from state, federal governments? And if I could add another thing onto that, if there are people listening today who want to support international students, what can they do?
6: Mm, Okay. Um, So I think in terms of... Like from governments, right? Like, I mean, it's appropriate policies that would secure the rights and assure like, the so, their social situation, which, you know, generally increase uh, in includes like access to healthcare, safe housing, legal and immigration safety nets, ongoing welfare support, etc. Um, like, other than that, you know, like, um, I guess. How people want to support international students. I think the key is not to think about this individualistically mm. or like making it about giving people money because it's always like that's always about like a temporary relief and maintains the power dynamic. So it's really important, essential to like send people food parcels and help people meet material needs. But a lot of mutual aid here and now, like, happens without political education and that like makes it charity. So I think it's a whole other thing to organize in solidarity with international students and like tap into shared experience, you know, between like multiracial communities and people can initiate things with, you know, what they know, the the people they know within their neighborhoods and workplaces with their own skills. Um, But yeah, long-term solidarity means that there's a, um, like a plan, like a long-term plan and long-term accountability rather than just like one-off actions um
5: so yeah i can leave it at that but um. yeah that's that's so important that you've mentioned that carolyn um and it's really interesting to note like you were saying the power dynamic um between yeah people who who can give and 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 um and and the people who are being exploited and, and do need these resources. Um, it's such an interesting conversation, one that I would love to revisit. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time today. Um, I'm so sorry. But Carol, would love to have you back on the show to talk more about this and, and to talk in detail about some of the campaigns that SNES is working on because I think it it is still relatively unknown for a lot of people, especially if they haven't. Um, had the experience of being an international student, um but thank you so much for for joining us on the show uh, this morning, Carol.
6: Yeah, thank you. and um if you know people um, are listening who are like keen to link up with Niz as an international student or or not, um yeah, like search us up on Facebook. we'll be very happy to hear from you.
5: Great, thank you so much, Carol. All right, thank you. So that was Carol, who is a university teacher and uh, an organiser with SNIS, Support Network for International Students, speaking to us about the uh, so many ways in which international students are being exploited in this country and how their situation is really precarious and unsafe. We will pop the link to their Facebook page in our show notes later this morning. And remember, please, to attend the online forum tomorrow to hear more um, from the perspective of international students.
4: That was uh, such a great interview, Fong. Um, And, yeah, like you said, would be good to revisit sometime in the future as well. Um, And we will be right back after this.
7: More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, It is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm.
4: Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. This morning we talked about uh, the Brisbane Christian College uh, withdrawing the sexuality contract after a lot of backlash and the effect that's had on a lot of young LGBTQI plus people. Um, And so I wanted to play this track by one of my favorite australian pop singers peach prc um this is her latest single and it's about her experience actually at a christian college when she was younger she recently said in a press statement that this song is for everyone who has felt shamed dirty impure wrong unloved and unworthy because of beliefs upheld by the church whether you are a believer in god or not you are worthy of feeling liberation just wanted to give a quick language warning on this one um, it's called God is a Freak by Peach PRC. I
8: heard my dad cry over a fight ball game, just got her turn that day. Listen, I'm just confused with the work that he's doing And I mean this respectfully God is a bit of a freak Why is he watching me get railed on the couch damn pure for a wedding He's got fucked up priorities God is a bit of a freak Like what's the fixation on hating the way he creates So why would I spend my eternity God when he's a freak, why is he watching me get enrailed on the couch, damn pure for wedding? he's got fucked up priorities, God is a bit of a freak, like what's the fixation on hating the way he creates, so I would I spend my eternity with God when he's a freak? And I'm just confused at the work that he's doing, and I mean me God is a bit of a freak. Why is he watching me getting railed on the couch, then pure for a wedding? He's got fucked-up priorities. God is a bit of a freak. Like, what's the fixation on hating the way he creates the so way? Would I spend my eternity? with God when he's a freak. Why is he watching me getting railed on the couch, and pure for a wedding? He's got fucked up priorities. God is a bit of a freak, like what's the fixation? I'm hating the way he creates? so would I want to spend my eternity with God when he's a, a new church class. Me getting railed on the couch and pure for a wedding. He's got fucked up priorities. God is a bit of a freak. Like, what's the fixation on hating the way he creates? So, would I wanna spend my eternity
4: with God
8: when he's a
4: freak. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. That was Peach PRC with God is a Freak. We're going
0: to jump into a conversation now with – Charlotte uh, and just a bit of background before we start on Sunday a small group of protesters took issue with the police marching in the midsummer pride march these protesters took place sorry this protest took place in context of a petition that was circulated in the week leading up to the event and signed by more than 1,000 members of the LGBTQIA community demanding that the police seize their involvement in midsummer which was ignored. Today, we're joined by one of the protest organisers, Charlotte, who is a gender non conforming lesbian, a community worker, and white settler living on unceded Wurundjeri land. They work in the community legal sector and are passionate about stemming the flow of funding from the Victorian government to the bloated Victorian police force and prison industry. They're on the show to discuss the recent protest against police and Serco Security, which is a security company notorious for their role in the imprisonment of refugees at the Park Hotel and their involvement in midsummer. Thank you so much for joining us, Charlotte.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: Could you start us off uh, with how you became involved in this fight to eradicate Victorian police from the Pride movement?
9: Yeah, sure. Um, So I am a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. um, And I also work in the um, community legal sector. And I'm really, um, I've over the past, I guess, five years, I I watched um, Dan Andrews funnel money into the Victorian police force and the Victorian prison system. And I've um, witnesses with my own eyes that protest the way that police behave towards protesters and activists. And I've also been aware of the um, you know, the growing push for um, all, all around the world to um, fund the police and abolish prisons. And I know that people have been protesting. I've had friends and comrades who've protested the police at Pride for years now, and this is my first year um, being involved. But, um... Yeah, myself and the others involved, we just really wanted to um, speak out against the police using our community events as a PR backdrop for a nice photo opportunity. Um, we we categorically
0: reject it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great point about, you know, this work has kind of been done for like years now um, and it's kind of only just getting publicity uh, in the mainstream press at the moment. But I wanted to focus on, you know, this idea of pinkwashing has come up really a lot uh, recently, even in particular with the Queer Film Festival um, uh, and the Palestinian um, uh, cause. Uh, This idea of pinkwashing comes up now and is brought up in a lot of reference to Victorian police and circo Securities' involvement in Midsummer. Would you be able to explain, I mean... Even though it seems obvious why this is happening at midsummer and what their involvement is, and why it's pinkwashing.
9: Yeah, um, I think. I mean, starting with the um, the ju- justice system as a whole and Victoria Police their and their role in it. Um, there's been a movement in the past twenty years, I think, around that like past twenty or so years within um, kind of like pr- prison, I guess, like prison policy. Um, to move towards this gender-responsive approach. And you see it's kind of the way it leaches into um, policing and um, Victorian government policy is, is very, very supportive of gender-responsive um, prisons. And it's kind of like a liberal feminist, touchy-feely, you know, this is, prison is a safe space for LGBTQIA um, employees. And it's a way of uh, marketing prisons, as rehabilitative and a marketing the justice system as, as a system that um, supports um, LGBTQIA+ people, when we know, um, based on you know the Pri- Victorian Pride Lobby report that just came out, that um, LGBTQIA+ people in Victoria, four out of five of them don't trust the police, and we and not to mention the. Um, you know, the role that policing and prisons plays in oppressing First Nations people across the continent. Um, You know, in the past two years, we've seen um, at least two black women have died at Dame Phyllis uh, Frost Women's Prison in Victoria. In 2020, there was a Gwenda Jamara, a Dota Wurrung, a Yorta Yorta woman who was only 37. And then um, earlier this, I think at the end of last year, there was another Aboriginal woman who was only 30. And I think um, the high, the high, kind of the, you know, LGBTQIA+ people are represented, are overrepresented in the justice system, um, and to say that, you know, to kind of market Victoria Police as a organisation that has pride, that should, you know, that, that has pride in being. Um, a queer organisation or an LGBT organisation is just a joke, you yeah. know, that wh- where's the evidence that they actually have pride and support our community? That's where the pinkwashing comes in, I think, because the evidence is there that that LGBT, that, sorry, that police don't support
0: LGBT. Yeah, it, it actually people, just you know? feels, like, insane. But, and, I know. And, yeah, and it feels... Completely just um, drenched in marketing. And I mean, you see it in other factors of industries all over the spectrum of workplaces now are kind of like using it as very much a marketing technique. um,
9: Absolutely. And I think like the police were not the only like really kind of unsavory group that was there. There was AGL, you know, NAB. And the thing that I realized being there is I've never been to Pride before because of that reason that I don't support. Um, the cops and corporations being in pride, but being there and seeing all the community groups, I actually kind of realised this is an important. This is a really important event for our community, and it was really emotional for me to see all these um, kids and schools and stuff. With everything that's been happening with the school in Queensland, yeah. like that's a really positive thing, and it's such a, um It's such a blight. To ha- it's such a shame to have then the police marching and, and have. Um, you know, AGL and, and also like a lot of Zionist groups marching. Like, yeah. I think there needs to be a real overhaul of like who who is this event for and and what does it mean to have pride? If, yeah. if you know, if St Kilda Football Club or Richmond Football Club were bashing and pepper spraying um, people, I don't think we would want them to march in uniform either. <laughs> like, Definitely,
2: It's yeah. a
9: pretty it's an issue that's like pretty um, pretty obvious and pretty specific to those those organisations like um, VicPol and um, Serco that are really actually harming our broader community and our um, trans and sex worker First Nations, De- homeless.
0: Yeah, definitely. Families. It makes it feel like, I mean, the whole movement is something to consume, which kind of feeds into that capitalist notion. But I did also want to uh, touch on, you know, what exactly, I mean, you were just speaking about what motivated you to organize the protest of no pride in prisons or police, uh, but what are exactly other demands from uh, protesters and the movement
9: so um, we are a different group to the um, the people who organize the um, the letter, although we totally support them. I think we maybe have we have shared goals and we have some different goals we are, come from a Abolitionist perspective, and we um, want to see the, the abolition fully of the, um, the prison system more broadly. And we want to see the police defunded. We see their role as um, really harmful in our community. We see the harm that they do. Um, the, you know the way that they the, their, racial, their racial profiling of South Sudanese Victorians, the where they collude with family violence perpetrators and compounds harm for survivors. We want to see that system brought to its knees and we see that, it's invo- that the in- we see pride as a pressure point to draw attention to the, um, the harm that's done by that system. So we absolutely want to see pride reclaimed as a community event and as a protest event, something that is political and that um, pays respect to the, the origins of pride as a um, protest. But um, I know that the, of the uh, more broadly, people have yeah basically said that we don't want to have police in Pride, that we want to have um, consultation um, with LGBTQIA plus community more broadly, including incarcerated and criminalised um, people, and we want to um, we our own group. Well, me personally, I don't want to see more funding going into going into Victoria Police under the guise of trading. I don't think that. Um, I think that often people say like, you know, let's give them more training. It ends up being more funding and they don't need any more funding. They've, been, they've gotten more funding under Dan Andrew than pretty much ever before. Yeah. So um, I don't think that they can train out that, you know, institutional um, violence. I think it's much deeper than that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and even looking at some of those photos from the event, it looked like, I mean, the turnout looked incredible and very powerful photos. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, how was the turnout and what was the atmosphere like at the protest?
9: Um, well, we we organised it like two days before because of, um, you know, I think a lot of people could relate um, to this experience of COVID and lockdown and yeah. then being disconnected from your community. And so that was only, I think, off there was only a handful of us but the experience was really wow. heartening because a lot of people from the crowd actually joined us and that was something that we really didn't expect um, and so by the end of the March, our um, our group had tripled with all these people who had joined in who were there for pride that they didn't support the police and they saw that as an opportunity to um, to, to speak up yeah. and so um, it was actually a really um, it felt it felt like a really um powerful moment yeah. that we were able to give people that opportunity to um join in and and that, um I think like in in the past they've been really violent towards protesters who have um stopped the march and so we um made the decision to just walk to just march in front of them and see um whether we could do that without um being removed and they, um, to the credit of the Midsummer Black like Marshals, they let us, they did let us march. Um, and so, yeah, it was actually a really, um, it was a really great day and it made me realize, like, you know, Pride could be a really fantastic event if people, if, you know, the police didn't use it as a um, PR opportunity.
0: Definitely. Um, yeah, such a powerful imagery there. And especially, like, physically people, you know, joining. Uh, a protest kind of says something tenfold than any sort of social media uh, event or post could do. So that's really powerful. Um, We're just quickly running out of time, so I just have a couple more things that I wanted to ask before we wrap up. Uh, One of them was, uh, has anything developed since the march? Has anything come out of it?
9: I think um, the people who organised the um, letter, Maybe in contact with Midsummer. But um, nothing, like, all I know is that Victoria Police didn't post any photo on social media of um, them at Pride. So we consider that a win <laughs> because that was, you know, that's our aim is to stop that opportunity from arising. So, um, but other than that, I guess it's Midsummer's choice going forward whether they want to respond to um, community, you know, calls
0: or not yeah um and also for future reference uh how can people get involved and are you planning any future uh resistance or just in like community involvement
9: um yeah i think i guess if you i would just say show up at pride next year and be ready (laughs) yeah we have like a pretty disorganized group at the moment so um i'm not sure what uh, as usual we are getting involved but we'll like we'll definitely be back next year and we want mid to understand that there will always be people um standing up against victoria police in pride it may be different groups you know we may do different things but we'll we'll be back next year so i guess just keep keep your eye out and um and if you want to come to Pride and just join in, that's, that was what went down this year, and it was like really effective. So.
0: Definitely. Yeah, there's power in numbers. Um, that's right. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for, Charlotte. But thank you so much for joining us here on Tuesday Breakfast. Such a great pleasure to chat to you this morning.
9: Awesome. Thank you.
0: That was Charlotte, who is a community worker uh, and uh, works in the community legal sector and is passionate about stemming the flow of funding from the Victorian government to the Victorian, uh, from the Victorian police force and prison industries. And they were just talking about the recent protests that happened on the weekend protesting Victorian police's involvement in midsummer.
4: Cool. We'll be right back after this. Tuesday Breakfast would like to
2: thank
10: our friends at Living Koko for their support of the programme Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
2: Welcome
4: back to Tuesday
2: Breakfast on 3CR.
4: Last week on Women of the Line, Priya spoke with Murray historian and activist Dr. Jackie Huggins about the recently published updated edition of Sister Girl, Reflections on Terrorism, Identity and Reconciliation. We're just going to play a snippet of that interview this morning, um, but if you did want to listen to the entire interview, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash women on the line um, and it's, it's, it's a really, really great interview um, that Priya has, as always, just done a phenomenal
11: job with. Hi. In this show, I'm joined by Murray historian and activist, Dr. Jackie Huggins, to discuss the recently published new edition of her profoundly influential book, Sister Girl. Reflections on Tideism, Identity, and Reconciliation, which is out now through the University of Queensland Press. Dr. Huggins is a member of the Bidra and Birigabba Juru peoples and is currently leading the work for Treaty or Treaties in Queensland. Her prolific career spans decades in the public service and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peak bodies, as well as her well-known contributions as an historian and author. Today, Dr. Huggins reflects on the original publication of Sister Girl in 1998 and where we stand 24 years on with respect to key issues, including the strength of Aboriginal women, race relations in feminism, and Indigenous leadership. Before we jump into this discussion about Sister Girl, I was wondering if you would like to introduce yourself in a little more detail to our listeners. Yes,
10: certainly. Um, my name is Jackie Huggins. I was born in Air North Queensland. I am a Bidjara, Birigaba Juru woman from North and uh, Central Queensland. I've lived in Brisbane most of my life, but I've uh, travelled around, of course, places like Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, and, uh, you know, I've had a, a, a very broad experience in in, uh, government, non-government organisations and the broader range, I would say about 40 uh, years of work within Aboriginal affairs. So it's been um, a fairly lengthy time with its ups and downs, of course, but nevertheless, I'm still here to, to talk about it.
11: Yeah, and I mean, it really is a wealth of experience that informs the writing that is collected in this updated version of Sister Girl, which you've made the time to talk with us about today. And this includes both your original explorations of identity, activism, feminism, leadership and community work that was published in 1998, as well as a collection of some of that later writing and orations that further develop these themes across your quite prolific career. So. Something that I found clearly underpinned that collection and which is echoed in the title is the strength of Aboriginal women and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on honouring Aboriginal women and the strong relationships between Aboriginal women through as you put it in your reflections on writing your mother's biography, The Liberated Writing About the Liberated. Yes well I think it's
10: fairly foundational of where I start. I'm um the daughter of a very strong mother and granddaughter of a very strong grandmother, who um, I guess she actually she passed when I was fairly young. My uh, grandmother, but my mother carried on this whole legacy of uh, you know the the very typical strong Aboriginal woman. When my father died in the uh, 1950s, my mother took on four children as a single mother. And uh, she, she read us up, and her story, of course, is um, written down in my book, Auntie Rita, in 1996. I hope to do a, a reversion, uh, a revamp of that, too, in the next year or so. But, you know, the strength, I think, of Aboriginal women is embedded as part of your DNA, and um, you tend to carry that on. And I know many strong Aboriginal women across the country who, uh, who do that in fact you know to be honest with you i don't know that i would know too many women who have not fought for their families fought for their children fought for the um social justice and the rights of indigenous people it may not have been in a public way but certainly in a in a way in which many of us carry that that legacy with us and uh, for me i've been very fortuitous in that I've been able to have a platform by which I can write and speak about issues that you know, many of our Aboriginal women would probably never find the, the place to you know, to talk about or write about those things. So in a way, my, you're right, my previous experience has really informed who I am and what I do and the kinds of positions I can hold, and I guess to be a voice. For our people when required, you know. I think one of the very best pieces of advice that uh, I got from actually as a media advisor don't jump into every dogfight because you will wear yourself out and you will become very overloaded and you'll burn yourself out. So I've sort of kept that in mind and, you know, I do say no to a few things and it's about pacing yourself. And for Aboriginal women, uh, you know, we have so many responsibilities that burden us at times that we have to, you know, do a bit of self-care and um, make sure that we're actually being taken care of ourselves.
11: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really leads into the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is your groundbreaking writing around The relationship between the women's movement and Aboriginal women and uh, a really memorable inclusion in both the original and updated version of Sister Girl is that transcript of your conversation with African-American feminist Bell Hooks, who's sadly no longer with us. And you discussed the ways in which white women needed to be prepared to give up power. I'm wondering if you could reflect on whether there's been any kind of shift in the dynamic of these issues of racial exclusion and anti-blackness in the feminist movement in 2022 compared to, you know, the time of publication of that original version? Yes,
10: well, uh, I started writing about this stuff in the 1980s, so that's a fair while ago. We were very invisible in those days, and there'd been struggles before that of Aboriginal women in the 60s and 70s, but, you know, basically just getting ignored, not getting any traction and, um, you know, being put on the back burner in the white feminist movement. And so I became very, very angry about that. And there were no Aboriginal women that I could look to who were writing uh, that stuff. So I turned to the US where I discovered great writers like Audre Lorde, Alice Walker and, of course, the wonderful bell Hooks who I studied through my university times. I was very fortuitous, thanks to Nicholas Joseph from the ABC Coming Out show, to be part of an interview with her because we were basically doing the same sorts of theorising but also ways in which we could see that we would be able to have a better relationship. Well, certainly, that was for me. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what it was for Belle, but... um, I thought, well, you know, how do we break this? Because all the women that were in power in those days were white women, you know, and they were very much associated with white men of power. And unfortunately, we were being excluded and and left out. So the 1980s and 90s for me were kind of really years where I tried to get some messages across and be informed by those black women from the States who really helped me crystallize in my head what that might look like. So Bell Hooks was a major influence in my life. Um, I was very lucky to meet her some 25 years ago when I was on a writer's tour. Um, I met her in London. She was giving a talk there and the next day I went back to meet her and have a cup of tea with her but uh, little did I know I thought oh gosh this is fabulous you know. Mm -hmm. She's actually um, making sure she sees me of all people but then um, when I showed up, she had a diary of on the hour every hour for women who particularly wanted to come and see her and talk to her. So, you know, I wasn't the only one, <laughs> but nevertheless, it was one of the great highlights of my time. It's always a struggle, you know, it, it really is, because as recently as June Oscar's report, which I refer to in Sister Girl, it's a report that was done 34 years later than the Women's Business Report, of which... I was part of the organization of that too, and, and writing uh, that report. and it pointed out all the struggles of First Nations women here in Australia and what we might do. yet you know that's a, that's a report I think that deserves far more attention because it is an absolute blueprint for you know how we can forward uh, our progress together.
4: So that was the start of Priya's interview with uh, Dr. Jackie Huggins on Women of the Line. Um, For the full interview, please head to 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. We will, of course, link to the full interview in our show notes later as well.
1: Joining us now is Lyndall Rollins, who is a journalist based in Nam. Uh, She was a UN correspondent in New York and received the UN Correspondents Association Prize for Climate Journalism. She'll be reporting on climate litigation for a new podcast about climate change-centred court cases called Damages. Lyndall joins us today to talk about her work, the launch of Damages, and what she'll be covering on the show. So there's a lot of talk about greenwashing and corporate spin, and she'll also be talking about the Walkley Regional Journalism Summit. Welcome to the show. Lindell.
12: Good morning, Evie. How are you going?
1: Good, thanks. Hi, everyone. Hi. It's so lovely to have you here. Um, I'm really excited about your new podcast too, which um, I understand is a kind of offshoot from the original series Drilled, uh, which you've done some work for, which is a cool kind of like true crime podcast about climate change and the real villains um, that are stopping people making meaningful change to save the world. So can you tell us a bit about your Australian feature on the podcast?
12: Yeah, thanks so much, Evie. I mean, I was, like, so excited last year when Amy Westervelt, who's this amazing investigative journalist um, from the United States, called me up and said she had this new... Um, project that she was working on called Damages, a podcast about climate litigation, Um, and she wanted me to look at some of these really interesting cases that are happening here in Australia. But Amy is probably best known for her podcast Drilled, which, um, as you said, is this true crime podcast about um, climate change and really looking into disinformation and um, who really is um, to blame for climate change. Um, and so I was really lucky last year to um, work on the first Australian episode for Drilled. Um, we called it um, fracking the outback. I was really um, kind of <laughs> happy that Amy let me call it that because it was I was being a little bit ironic, but um, <laughs> I thought it was. Um, appropriate. I mean um, what's happening in the Beach Loop Basin, um, what's happening with the plan for this um, gas-fired recovery for Australia is um, really concerning in many places. Um, we're looking at particularly looking at um, fracking of Indigenous lands and I was really lucky for that episode to speak to Ricky Denk who is this amazing Gadanji woman who um, gave this really emotional um, testimony to the Senate inquiry last year and is really, um, really, really concerned about what fracking is doing to um, her family's um, sacred water sites. Um, But what we covered in that episode, which perhaps hasn't got as much attention with the Beedaloo Basin, is about these plans um, to build a new plastics manufacturing plant on Darwin Harbour. And this is something that um, one of the recent series of Drilled has gone into is about how a lot of um, oil and gas companies are sort of looking at, okay, the demand for oil as energy is is beginning to drop, but what is the big future growth industry? Um, And that is plastics. Mm. So I think it's interesting just to see that like as much as we all are trying our best, um, in a really broken system to recycle that the oil companies are really sort of betting on um, oil and, and gas companies are really betting on plastics continuing continuing to grow as an industry which is probably why it's so hard for us to sort of reduce plastic um, use in our daily lives. Yeah and the de-
1: it's always um left up to individual dependencies on plastics too like you know i think every person in melbourne could probably uh, speak to some sort of pressure in their own sort of daily lives to you know adopt single use Plastics and sorry, uh, to get rid of single use plastics, I should say, and you know, adopt, um, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) adopting like you know, glass containers for lunch and that sort of thing. But like a lot of those things are also plastics themselves, so it's interesting to see where they've sort of tried to introduce new dependencies to it, it, and yeah what an interesting sort of perspective that okay they've noticed that we stopped using oil as much so how can they continue to uh, feed our addiction to those kind of you know fossil fuels
12: yeah and that like individual responsibility narrative that we have like i think that's really big in australia like um but coming up to the election you know that's something that we really need to look at because um as much as it's important that we all do what we can for the environment, that narrative actually came from the fossil fuel industry. Like, I remember when I was in university, like we were doing all this different kind of activism and then suddenly we were working on this thing called um, the carbon footprint and we didn't really know where it came from, but apparently it was actually um, BP who had this massive marketing campaign to make the carbon, the individual carbon footprint Um, this sort of popular thing because um, for them, they thought that if we all felt like it was our individual responsibility to address climate change, then that would mean that um, the companies that have been profiting off this and continue to profit off this wouldn't have to um, take responsibility as much.
1: Yeah, like, I remember having, like, suddenly, like, you know, when buying flights and that sort of thing, it gives you a little option to, mm-hmm. like, you know, buy carbon credits or, you know, offset your carbon footprint. Again, making a, you know, a large-scale problem an individual responsibility. Yep. So, um, yeah. Damages, um, which is your new podcast, which is starting next month, I believe, Um as we talked about before, it's following court cases that are centered on matters involving climate change and um, the players that can affect it. So what are some of the Australian cases that you're following?
12: Yeah, so um, damages, I'm not sure if there's an exact release date, but there's a trailer and you can sign up on um, wherever you get your podcasts um, to, um, to subscribe so that you'll um, get the episodes when they first come out. Um, there's, a few different Australian cases that we'll be following. Of course, one of the big ones in Australia is the Sharma versus the Environment Minister case, the youth case. Um, there's the Torres Strait Aid who have taken the Australian government to the UN Human Rights Committee. Um, another interesting case that we're hoping to look at is um, is the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility who are taking Santos um, to court over its claims that natural gas is... Clean energy. And although that one hasn't quite, it's still sort of in preliminary hearings and it hasn't quite come up yet, I just wanted to sort of chat about that a little bit because I think that um, Gerald has done a lot of reporting on um, greenwashing. And so um, in the US, there have been some pretty major cases um, challenging sort of. Big um, fossil fuel companies' disinformation. Um, even like right at the moment, Congress has a committee that's looking um, that's called "Fueling the Climate Crisis: Exposing Big Oil's Disinformation Campaign to Prevent Climate Action," and they've been interviewing like the CEOs of all the major oil companies. Um, so I think this case will be an interesting one to watch in Australia because it is the first of its kind looking at. Um, you know, the sorts of um, the ways that um, fossil fuel companies might have used um, sort of marketing and public relations to affect how we um, think about issues like climate change. Mm. Um, So um, what's interesting as well is that um, I think there's been some more campaigns happening in Australia in the last few months. So, for example, um, there are public relations professionals, people working in marketing, who um, have been coming together under this um, group called Coms Declare and saying that they, um, as agencies or individuals, are no longer going to work for fossil fuel clients. Um, We've had people in sports, people in the arts, um, saying that they don't want to work with fossil fuels. And then last week, Uh, So I'm also reporting quite a bit on um, what's happening in the Latrobe Valley. I'm hoping to do more reporting on that because um, that's where I was born. So I have very early memories of what the pollution there was like. So last week, um, there were these health workers, doctors and nurses from around the state that came to protest outside the headquarters, um, the head office of AGL, which is the Australian gaslight company, um, which operates. Um, Loyang in the Latrobe Valley where we have one of the biggest open cut brown coal mines in um, in the world and they were just expressing their concerns about the health impacts not only of climate change but also of um, local pollution. So I think um, yeah it was just really interesting to see that we have all these people from different um walks of life who are really um, getting together and, and looking at climate change.
1: Yeah, and it's like a really direct response to, so like you know people in those regional areas deciding like you know now is the time to be able to you know get together and you know protest this. Um, so what is happening now with the Walkley uh, Regional Journalism Summit um that's happening this week?
12: Yeah, so as I was saying, you know, these this um doctor, this GP and this um mental health nurse that I interviewed from the Latrobe Valley had come up to protest outside AGL. They said to me, you know, like they're experiencing a coke brown in the Victorian health system at the moment, but they just thought that this was too important after, you know, um the Latrobe Valley is not too far from these really catastrophic fires as well that we had. So um yeah, they were coming up to protest outside the AGL head office. But um, what I find interesting is that, although I was talking about, you know, we have people from public relations and sports and and health and the arts who are really saying, you know, looking at the influence of fossil fuel companies on their industries. Um, I'm not sure that we've seen that as much coming from journalists. Mm-hmm. And um, so this Thursday, I think it is the Walkley. Foundation, which won the Walkley Awards, will be holding a regional journalism summit. And um, like journalism in regional areas in Australia has been struggling. There has been a lot of local newsrooms closing down, but I was sort of hoping that um, there would be something on the um, program that would look at climate change, because I have been interviewing a lot of people from regional Australia who are really concerned about climate change. But... Unfortunately, there wasn't. And then I sort of looked a little bit further on the program because um, there was actually room for a panel from Google and a panel from Facebook. Um, and we know um, that, for example, you know, Facebook, for example, has been receiving a lot of funding from fossil fuel companies that do advertise on theirs. So um, that's sort of why they have been um, pretty much forced into Distributing a tiny bit of that money back to journalists. But um, they do have a panel. But then I sort of was interested to see who else was sponsoring this summit. And I also saw um, that AGL was there. So um, <sighs> it, it's... Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so frustrating. Like, I'm sure you feel the same way. Just like the, uh, you know, you try so hard to be able to convey these issues. And it really does seem like there is a surge of fossil fuel companies attempting to sort of infiltrate culturally in this way. Um, You spoke about it with sports um, before and, like, you know, a lot of athletes are starting to push back against that in the same way that, you know, alcohol or tobacco has done in the past.
12: Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't think, of course, I mean, that's an analogy that is often drawn. Like, we wouldn't, of course, think it was normal for – you know, a tobacco company to be sponsoring a a sports event. And, you know, as journalists, we do really need to report on these issues about climate change for regional Australia. You know, I've been speaking to people who are traumatised about the bushfires, like these amazing bushfire survivors that, Successfully sued the New South Wales EPA. I've been speaking to people who were so concerned about fracking on their country, particularly you know traditional owners, and um, you know also just speaking to these people from the Valley, you know this um, mental health nurse, like she was explaining to me, you know how important it is that there is a just transition, and and AGL does have a role in that. She she thought that AGL should have a role in that, you know, not to pull out like um like the owner of um Hazelwood did really abruptly. So um I think that um you know we do need to be able to recover these issues new, um with nuance as journalists. But I just I just really hope that we're able to have a conversation about that because, you know, people in public relations are, are saying that they don't um that, you know, they're sort of drawing a line in the sand. And I just really think that as Australian journalists we also need to talk about, you know, what, what our um you know how how are we going to um cover this this growing issue of climate change um, in a balanced way for people in regional areas. Um, yeah. And whether that or not, that includes funding from AGL, I think is like, um,
5: yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry,
1: Lyndall. That's all we have time for today, yeah, but I want to thank, thank you so much, you. much for speaking to us. Um, I'd love to have a chat with you in a few weeks time, just after the walk, as well, just to see what the fallout has been. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining yeah, us.
12: Thanks so much, Evie. Okay. See you later. Bye. Bye.
1: So that was Lyndall Rollins. Um, As I I mentioned before, she's a journalist based in Nam, talking about climate litigation.
4: That was such a great interview and I'm really looking forward to the podcast. Um, Well, we're essentially at the end of our show today. It was um, absolutely full of various (laughs) incredible and varied interviews. Um, But, yeah, like... (laughs) I'm overwhelmed by how much we've been through today on the show. Um, but yeah, uh, we will uh, have the podcast up later today and we hope that you stay tuned to 3CR the rest of the week for um, all the breakfast shows and join us again next week. And stay tuned to Accent of Women coming up next. You've been listening
12: to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.